Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the New Spectator USA website. I'm joined today by Kurt Mills, who is, I'm very pleased to say, the brand new Washington editor of Spectator USA. Kurt, it's great to have you on board. Welcome aboard. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. I think we're going to come to you quite regularly on this podcast and uh, Spectator USA readers will be reading your name a lot more uh, and we're going to be wanting to know what's going on in Washington and you're the man to tell us. Yes. And today I want to talk about William Barr, the Attorney General, and what's been going on there. What's what's the latest from Washington? The latest is in this sort of meta battle to control the narrative surrounding the special counsel's release of the Russia report. Uh, Mr. Barr, the Attorney General, after being nominated this early earlier this year as a sort of establishment caretaker of the role, has won fresh plaudits on the right for his sort of uh, ferocious handling of the release of the report. Uh, it's clearly making his long-term, long-time friend, Mr. Mueller, the special counsel, uncomfortable, although Mueller appears loath to reject uh, Barr's presentation of his findings in their entirety. The crux of it is that Barr spoke to Congress this week in open hearing, uh, agreed to uh, uh, one public display, and rejected another. Uh, and he also threw in uh, a couple of uh, barbs at his old friend Mueller, calling Mueller's letter to the Attorney General a bit, quote, snitty, and questioning uh, the medium through which he expressed uh, moderate frustration. Uh, at one point saying, why didn't Mueller just call me? Well, this is an interesting uh, dynamic at play here because it's been a sort of uh, portrayed as a flaw in, let's call it, the anti-Trump's narrative of how the uh, Mueller inquiry ended. Uh, Is that that actually Mueller and Barr are are friends. They've been friends for a long time. But it does seem that there there has been tension. I think that's undeniable that there's been tension over the redactions of the Mueller report, what was left out, and uh, there seems to have been some row between the two men. That, that's that's fair to say, isn't it? I, I, I think it's I think it's clear to say. Uh, I, I I would say that uh, that there's an enormous personality difference between Mr. Barr and Mr. Mueller. I, I actually had the occasion of meeting Mr. Mueller at, at some length in person six years ago. He's he's unquestionably the most sober, solemn man I've ever met. Uh, and so if he was going to express frustrations, uh, he would do it in a very restrained fashion, which is, which is what I think he's doing. Um, I think... Are you, saying, are you saying that Barr is the opposite of sober? I'm not sure it's... I'm not, I'm not saying it's the opposite, but Barr is... I mean, he clearly... I, he's enjoying this. I mean, he sort of likes this... Uh, uh, you know, he hasn't been an attorney general. He hasn't been a major politician in the United States since H.W. Bush, which is 25 years ago, more. And he's clearly enjoying a sort of, uh, oh, man, I, I, I'm loathe to make a direct comparison, but it's almost like, like the Donald Rumsfeld uh, uh, press conferences when he came back as Secretary of Defense under W. Bush after basically being out of the limelight for 25 years. He clearly, he's at ease of the press and he's relishing the moment. Now, that's not to say that he's not handling this correctly. Uh, I'm not an attorney, uh, but in the American justice system, uh, essentially, uh, you, the 
the job of prosecution is to ascertain guilt, or the job of you know juries and judges and jury and grand juries is to ascertain guilt. Uh, in that respect, this report has been you know as close to as exonerative as possible. They found uh, no collusion and, and uh, tossed the question of obstruction to the legislature. I think that Barr, uh, again, he's the Attorney General of the United States, but he's also Donald Trump's Attorney General, is like, look, this, uh, this is over. And uh, I, yeah. think, I think there's a fresh, uh, and, and I, I think it is over, but there's clearly uh, an industry in this town, especially I would say on the establishment left, uh, you know, the MSNBC type circuit, the CNN type circuit, that has an interest in sort of, you know, well, you know, Mueller's not going to testify until late May. Let's keep going with this. Uh, and I think that's what's going on. Uh, I do think it's high drama because, well, because Barr and Mueller are friends and now that they're, they're publicly showing some differences. Yes. And, and I mean, uh, you know, CNN and NBC have been uh, hitting this idea quite hard that um, Barr is doing just about everything he can to protect the president, to protect Trump and to um, put away the, the Mueller report. Now, you can interpret that um, in the way that they do, which is that uh, he's helping a cover up. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can say that, um, you know, he has seen that the whole thing was um, a sort of slight fantasy to begin with. And uh, and he's trying to sort of get on with it so the presidency can move on. Or perhaps there is a third way of seeing it, which is that uh, the Trump administration knows that Mueller is good for them in terms of the court of public opinion. And that the longer they can drag out this drama... Um, the better, and that Barr sees that as well. Is that third possibility true, do you think? I, I think the first interpretation is fantastic on its face. Uh, the, uh, the idea that, Mueller, uh, that Barr is involved in some sort of massive cover-up. Uh, it, was, it was Mueller's report and Mueller's findings in the special counsel's office that found no crime uh, implicating neither the president nor his inner circle, whether that be Kushner, Don Jr., uh, Steve Bannon, etc. Uh, and as to your question, I think that the Mueller uh, investigation is now this strange thing. It's clearly been bad for the president's ability to govern that he had this albatross of a special counsel investigation around his neck for the first you know, two odd years of his presidency. That being said, the fact the expectations were so high that the speculation was so rife that essentially uh, the results were ho-hum, what we knew essentially six months ago, uh, that's now a political weapon for the president. And when the president, although still somewhat uh, of a novice uh, politically in terms of governing in Washington, he is an expert at portraying himself as a victim. And although I don't per se believe in a deep state, it sure as hell looks like uh, to the layman that the man on the street, that a bunch of entrenched Washington insiders sort of ganged up to clog up his early presidency. And this is where uh, you could say Trump and his legal team have been pretty smart because uh, they set the bar at collusion. That's what Trump has always said, no collusion, no collusion. And by setting the bar that high themselves, uh, they've, they've inevitably made it look better. Right. And I mean, if, if let's say, if let's say, you know, the... Trump had tried to say we were not an incompetent campaign in 2016, then he would have looked pretty silly. 
Although Jared Kushner, I think, essentially said that they were an incompetent campaign in 2016. Remember, he says, you know, this is the president's son-in-law, senior advisor, said the, the nature of uh, the accusation is so farcical because we couldn't even collude with our local offices, which, which was yeah. true, which was true um, based on everything yeah. I saw. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's important to remember that uh, impeachment uh, and the president's legal position is a political standard. Uh, not strictly a legal standard. And so uh, for two years, essentially, uh, I mean, serious members of the, of, of the American press have, have lodged, you know, pretty extreme allegations of, of outright collusion. Uh, there was a New York Magazine cover piece just last year that argued that he had, that the president had been a Russian ax- asset, you know, prior to the fall of the Soviet Union. This is the kind of, um, this was this was the dressing which we were which we were getting ready to hear the results in, and it, it really was it was nothing close to that, and so you can say, oh well, maybe he he obstructed justice. Oh well, uh, he committed a campaign violation finance violation. Oh well, let's look at his business records because the expectations were were set so high, and because he is the president of the United States, I think this looks a lot more, as I've said for months like the Bill Clinton scenario than the Richard Nixon scenario, where the man on the street is, is just frank, frankly not going to uh, countenance uh, an impeachment over what, what many see as you know, a, a minor infraction. And, uh, and, and also perhaps just simply the, you know, the man on the street is tired of the story. I think all journalists are tired of the story and have been for some time, but uh, people are a bit fed up of this story and, and maybe even fed up of the bar story now, which is... They don't really care. They just want it to be done. Well, I mean, look, we, we have a divided country and we have a divided media landscape. That's no secret. Uh, the, the fact is, I think most Americans are done, done with this story. I think polling bears that out. Um, but a subset, and I would, I would basically call this the establishment liberal press, you know, the kind of press that was, you know, I, you know favorable enough to Hillary Clinton, uh, they can't get enough of this. Uh, and, I mean, if you look at the, the ratings of, you know, sort of the, the, the big networks, MSNBC and CNN, the Russia stuff is catnip. Now, granted, that might only be 4 million viewers, but that's 4 million loyal viewers for them. And I do think that sort of financial, uh, I, I wouldn't say, say impetus, but incentive is clearly at, at play. As soon as the, uh, the bar letter came out, a lot of these guys' ratings tanked. And so that, that, that's very much – and it, it, I, 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 I would have been hesitant, you know, three or four years ago – to really care about all these sort of t- television dynamics and politics. But this is in some ways the cable television presidency, right? The president's shadow cabinet is at Fox News, and that there's sort of a revolving door between the White House uh, and uh, News Corp to an extent. And then additionally, there's actually a counter reaction where you see much of the Democratic establishment is now um, CNN and MSNBC contributors, and they're also sort of a triple-A a ball club for uh, you know, a potentially nascent democratic administration. Yeah, well, but let's talk about the Democrats actually, because uh, it seems to me Nancy Pelosi has realised that although she has to play ball with a lot of uh, the impeachment talk and the "we'll still get him" sort of line, uh, she has realised it's not great politics and is is trying to kind of move the party away from that because as Democrats who are perhaps you could say the more intelligent Democrats have realised that the way they're going to uh, win back power is by talking about health care or um, issues where they can hurt Trump rather than um, uh, still banging the Russia drum, which suits Trump perfectly, as, as is now quite well known. Yeah, I, I think Pelosi plainly does not uh, want impeachment. Uh, 
Uh, I think uh, she she plainly views that as unwise, given the facts that we have. Uh, granted, she'll she'll of course throw in barbs at bar, etc. But I, I think you know, especially for you know a lot of the viewers of listeners of this podcast, what I would I would I would actually compare Pelosi's position, uh, you know, to uh, Theresa May's in Britain, or or the head of a, a of a party in governing in Britain, because the House is parliamentary is parliamentary, even if the American political system is not. So essentially, she has these hardliners. Uh, think uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. As well as, although not directly under her supervision, the the 2020 Democratic candidates who have way different incentives than someone who's trying to keep a caucus together. And so if you're trying to win in Iowa, particularly, particularly if you're running a relatively anonymous kind of campaign so far, like a Gillibrand, a Christian Gillibrand, or an Amy Klobuchar, all the incentives are for you to, is for you to have the most extreme position and then tack to the center on the on the off chance you're the nominee, I think you see this off again, again, and again. I mean, Trump in uh, as a candidate, you know, basically endorsed a Muslim ban, uh, and then he figured it out how that actually would look once he was the nominee and the president. Right, and which I mean, which of the current Democrat? Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. We can range this subject out a bit because, as as we said, we're all a bit tired of Mueller. I mean, how do we think the Democrats? Let's let, let's transition on Mueller and say which of the Democrats do you think has been most of the likely Democratic candidates has been the most sensible uh, in their approach to the Russia story? Oh, um, well, I mean that's getting. To, I, I would say, uh, look. So so Biden's Joe Biden's the front runner until until defrocked. I, I mean we we could. We can slice and dice this a million ways, but I think once he announced this week, he's, he's opened up some polls as high as a double-digit lead on his on basically the second-place guy, Bernie Sanders. And you know, actually, uh, Sanders has been quite uh, uh, strident on uh, the the Russia matter, uh, which has actually been a little bit off-brand because on, on foreign policy generally, uh, Sanders is quite an interventionist. And the sort of mm. subtext of the Russia hawkishness is a you know a, a more broadly interventionist worldview. Uh, Biden is a person-to-person kind of guy, and there's going to be well, first of all, there's you know nearly 50 years a treasure trove of infor- of of material to pour through on Biden's past statements. But I you know yeah. just just to you know just yesterday an old video came resurfaced and went viral of Biden calling Dick Cheney a good guy. I think that. Uh, Biden is not emphasizing it, and uh, Biden's case is that he can run Washington and restore Washington to something closer to what it was. And if he goes, you know, sort of Donald Trump is an illegitimate president, the process doesn't work. Restore me via the process. It kind of undermines that argument. So I think you've seen him a little less. Now, look, all of these guys are going to say his tie, his financial, his finances are a nightmare. His his ties alleged to, the, to Russia are unacceptable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of emphasis, I think you've seen Biden do it the least. And I think it's because he wants to do it the least and he also needs to do it the least. Um, and it, I mean, it's been quite surprising to me uh, that Biden, the initial signs that, that Biden, who only re- very recently, only a few days ago, declared his candidacy, uh, the initial polling, and it is early, um, suggests his candidacy is not going to melt upon contact with the reality, which had been what a lot of people uh, thought would happen, and that he is indeed, at the moment, we have to say, a pretty formidable candidate, even though, uh, as is well known, 
um, among people who've followed his career. He's extremely gaff prone and his previous presidential runs have gone very badly. What, what explains this? What, what explains his popularity? Uh, I, I, w- I would say if, if there's a Kurt Mills grand theory of the current political moment, uh, so a lot of the people who got uh, Donald Trump right, uh, I, I think may get Joe Biden wrong because it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the two parties. Yes, both parties are at civil war, uh, but I think the Republican civil war is, it, it, there isn't actually a, a parity. The Republican civil, civil war, you have, a, you have an establishment that basically represents 10% of the, of, of the party, business interests and sort of you know, lobbying and think tanks in Washington, you know, sort of mainstay old magazines. And you have 90% of the party that's basically populist nationalist and has been for some time, and Trump brought that out. I mean, if, if Trump hadn't been the nominee, the second place guy was Ted Cruz, who was the, you know, the secondary bane of the establishment. And then mm. the, the Jeb Bush, John Kasich, Marco Rubio uh, kind of candidates in 2016 represented less than 20 percent of the party. If you just look at the data, the Democrats are different. I think Sanders could very well be the nominee. I'm relatively bearish on it uh, compared to uh, a lot of the, I, I would say his predicted price, I think is like, you know, 19 cents, 20 percent is, is about fair which means like a 20% chance of being the nominee. But I, I'm, I'm relatively bearish on him vis-a-vis Biden or another establishment person, because if you look at the Democrats, there is actually a constituency for a Biden-type candidate, for an establishment candidate. In 2016, yes, Sanders did really well, but people forget that the establishment went directly against the anti-establishment, and the establishment won. Hillary was the nominee. Yeah. So, and, um, and with Sanders, I'd say... Uh, the having when when he declared, I mean, uh, I wrote a piece about it. Um, it. It seemed like he was the one to stop, and I I couldn't really see how you stop it. But his candidacy so far, there's been an attempt to professionalize him. I'd say that hasn't actually been that successful. Uh, yes, I mean, so Sanders obviously has to. Uh, I, I would say he almost. I mean, so he's doing much better than this that this comparison ever did. But he actually has a little bit of a Rand Paul trap. So Rand Paul thought he was going to inherit all of his father's voters. And so obviously Sanders would just be inheriting his own voters. But essentially, like, part of the charm... You of should, the- for, for our British readers, we should explain a little bit about Ron Paul was a Republican maverick. I think there, uh, I think there was, a, it was a time, yes. So Ron Paul is a Republican maverick who ran in 08 in 2012. And then his son, who was in the Senate, not the House like Ron Paul, and was considered more moderate... Uh, ran, a, ran a far more disastrous political uh, presidential campaign in 2016, even though he was considered like more presidential timber. So why did that happen? Here's my comparison vis-a-vis Sanders. Sanders himself, I think, in basically leaked comments at the Times in, uh, in the spring of 2016, sort of conceded that he never really thought he could win in 2016. That was kind of the fun, right? Like, like there was, mm. it, was, it was almost a massive protest vote that unintentionally you know, almost got over the top. That's not the case now. Sanders has been running for president professionally since he lost last time, or at least since Donald Trump's election in 2016. And Sanders wants to win. And so the danger is, I think that you're alluding to, is it going to be a little bit more tight-lipped? Is it going to be a little, um, is it going to be a problem? And, and, and additionally, he's got people in his space. 
uh, I think the big rival is Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, is an uneven candidate. She had a good announcement and then sort of disappeared for a couple of months. But the word is that she has a uh, she has an incredible ground game in Iowa and she is actually catching uh, fire again. And so Iowa is the first race. And you could actually see a scenario where Warren wins Iowa and then she's uh, if she did win Iowa, which I don't think is necessarily favored, but if she did win Iowa, then the next race would be in New Hampshire, and she could win that, having won the Iowa uh, caucus, and she could be on her way. And I think the danger for Sanders versus Warren is that Warren is an anti-establishment candidate, but the establishment would accept her as the nominee. I think if Sanders won, it would be by overpowering the establishment and you would actually see some you know, big money defecting and you would see a sort of quixotic neoliberal candidate as a third party guy who, was, who would be taking from Sanders' votes. I think Warren could coalesce the party in a way that Sanders won't. It's my view. And lastly, Kurt, who do you think Trump most wants to face? I mean, the person I've been told is actually Warren. I, I, I've been told that that's the candidate he, he rates his chances of against best. Yeah, I think that's a mistake on his part. Um, I think that uh, I, I think that Warren would, would potentially needle him on a lot of on a lot of the you know underwhelming nature of his domestic agenda so far vis-a-vis the, what he campaigned on. But uh, I, I do think Trump's position is quite strong. I think uh, Trump is, is plainly most worried about Biden, uh, which is uh, uh, appropriate. Uh, but I think uh, he, Trump basically thinks it's in between Biden and Bernie. He said that in an interview with Catherine Herridge on Fox last night, and he wouldn't say which one he would prefer uh, to uh, come up against. But I think he actually would prefer to come against Bernie. And that way, uh, there's such an architecture on the right to run against socialism. And, uh, you know, Although people uh, my age, under 40 types, are basically ambivalent on socialism versus capitalism in the United States, in the United States writ large, and the older demographic, who remi- I, I, I just remind uh, the listeners, just vote so much more, socialism remains a fringe position in the demographic writ, writ large. It's about 20%. Um, so I think he would like to run a sort of, uh, I mean, o- almost an 04 style George W. Bush campaign of fear against socialism and the uh, the the ascendant new left, which which they could uh, you know, which which we you know I I do believe is is uh, he, they, there there are many concerning elements of it, but I think they would like to drum that up as much as possible. And the th- the thinking with Biden uh, is is that I mean he'll win Pennsylvania if he gets the nomination, he'd win Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, I talked to a guy. I talked to a guy uh, who I, I my my trust on Pennsylvania is marrow deep. Uh, I, he's one of the guys who got this right in sixteen. He does not think that uh, it's a foregone conclusion that Biden would beat Trump in Pennsylvania. Trump's infrastructure is underrated. I think which Trump had no infrastructure in twenty sixteen. That's not the case now. I think we see that with the fundraising and uh, this. Uh, my 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 best source on Pennsylvania, just again single source, argued that the places in Pennsylvania that voted for Trump are even more stridently pro-Trump than they were in 2016. Um, So yes, though, Biden is a major problem for Trump in the heartland. Uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, 
Ohio. Uh, that's a much different candidate uh, than, a, say, a Beto O'Rourke or a Kamala Harris. Uh, I think they would have to go a, a different route, a sort of sunshine route, uh, threaten Trump. But oddly, but oddly B- Bernie would be a problem for him there too, wouldn't he? Uh, I in, think in so. The Rust Belt. I think so. Um, however, I mean, the socialism messaging would be potentially overwhelming. Again, this is this is we're far out, but like they they can't really call Warren or Biden a socialist. They they reject the, the, the mantle themselves. And so, while clearly people in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are willing to to vote for a quote economic nationalist, are willing to vote for a trade protectionist, are they really willing to throw in? in America with the Reds. On that note, that terrifying note, Kurt, I think we'll end it. Um, Once again, so glad to have you on board with The Spectator and um, I'm sure we'll be speaking again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a spectator moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. <laughs>